Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. If you are listening to the show today, just a very, very quick reminder before we get going to make sure you subscribe or follow along on your Red Ovens player. And if you haven't already, you can just take two seconds also to leave me a five-star review if you have been enjoying and appreciating the content so just take a moment now, if you can, to do that. It would really make my day. It also helps other people who are searching for this information to know that this information is useful and valid um, because it has been approved by a larger number of people. So thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And now I will go into what I'm going to talk about today, which is blood sugar. If you have listened to some of the previous episodes in this podcast, if you have been following me on Instagram or reading some of the blogs on my website, it may probably be no surprise to you that blood sugar is something that I am very passionate about. I think it's really important when it comes to fatigue recovery. I have published previous episodes talking about blood sugar, the ketogenic diet, fasting. I have blogs on my website where I have written about these topics. But today what I wanted to focus on is blood sugar more from the perspective of the hypoglycemic. So somebody who tends more towards low blood sugar. I realized in some of the content that I have been creating that I have potentially been a little bit more biased um, because my own challenges with blood sugar were much more around um, having higher levels of blood sugar, a little bit more insulin resistance that um, I tend to frame or talk about this information a little bit more from that side of things. So to keep the balance, I thought I would do an episode today, which is specifically for those people who tend towards the opposite, which is low blood sugar. But before I go into that, also just to say people who are more prone to high blood sugar will also experience moments of low blood sugar. And people who are prone to low blood sugar will also experience moments of high blood sugar. So even if you think your blood sugar is perfect, even if you're somebody who thinks their blood sugar is a little bit more on the high side, there could still be value in listening to this episode today. So don't automatically rule yourself out just because of the, the big topic that I'm going to be talking about. Just stay with us, have a little bit of a listen, and maybe there'll be something that useful um, useful that comes from listening to this episode. But before I go into all the details of talking about hypoglycemia or low blood sugar, what I want to do is kind of just frame the importance of blood sugar specifically when it comes to fatigue recovery or chronic fatigue recovery or chronic illness recovery or whether you have an autoimmune condition, which you know, you, you're never going to fully recover from, but you can potentially put into remission. Whatever the scenario is for you, um, whether you're just experiencing a little bit of a burnout, we need to stabilize blood sugar as a priority and as a foundation for the healing journey. Whatever your clinical picture, if you're experiencing a chronic illness, the healing often involves unpicking a web of complex imbalances. And Everybody has their own web, which means that there's no one-size-fits-all recipe for success. What is the most powerful thing is to understand our own web and then to begin to pick it apart in a 
strategic way, which means doing the right things at the right time and in the right order. And that's something I learned the hard way in my own journey was just doing a whole bunch of stuff and not necessarily being strategic about it and not necessarily always doing things in the best order. And, um, you know, that, that cost me a lot of time uh, because I didn't have a the framework that I have now to understand how things actually work in the body and what are the clinical priorities when it comes to moving through a healing journey. So establishing control over blood sugar is something that can really make or break case outcomes. And therefore, if you're somebody who has with patterns of, of what we would call dysglycemia, whether that's high blood sugar or low blood sugar, this has to be addressed before you can move on. Because if you are experiencing issues with your blood sugar, you're probably also experiencing issues with your mood. You're probably experiencing issues with inflammation. You're probably experiencing issues with sleep. You're probably experiencing issues with your gut. And you're probably experiencing issues with your energy. So we need to address blood sugar as a foundation for then going on to work on other things that we might work on. But blood sugar is foundational. You can't like sweep it under the rug and pretend that it's something that's not that important. Um, a lot of people uh, talk about how important the nervous system is when it comes to healing. And I agree with that. But there is a huge relationship between your blood sugar and your nervous system. And you can't out meditate bad blood sugar. You can't do loads of somatic work and then still have dysregulated blood sugar you need to get a handle on your blood sugar so even if that's the only message you're able to receive today please receive it because i think a lot of people are in denial about this topic or i'm working with a lot of people who've come to me from other practitioners who've never worked through this with their previous practitioner in a strategic way let alone even have it on the practitioner's radar that this was something that they needed to work on. So take a moment to just digest that and um, think about you know, how you're feeling in your body. Do you think your blood sugar is optimized? And if you think that your blood sugar tends to be a little bit more on the low side, then keep on listening. So let's talk a little bit about hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. There are three main types. The first type is pathological. So pathological hypoglycemia is when fasting glucose, that's when you haven't eaten everything, anything, is below 3.6 if you're working in millimole per liter like we do here in the UK, or 6.5 if you're working in milligrams per deciliter like perhaps the US. And so this type of very, very low blood sugar is usually associated with a disease or perhaps exogenous insulin or medications. And if someone is experiencing pathological hypoglycemia, they really need a medical professional to help them understand the contributing causes, whether or not that is a disease pathophysiology or some sort of medication which is impacting them. So for pathological hypoglycemia, that's a little bit beyond my scope of practice as a nutritional therapist and functional medicine practitioner. So I won't be talking more about that today. I'm going to be mainly focusing on functional hypoglycemia, which is hypoglycemia that is 
experienced when fasting glucose is within the reference range, but it's on the lower side. So for example, 4.7 millimole per liter or 85 milligrams per deciliter. There is also another marker we can measure, which is lactate dehydrogenase, LDH, and that is sometimes less than 140. So someone with functional hypoglycemia may have symptoms of hypoglycemia, but those symptoms resolve when they eat food. And then there's another type of hypoglycemia, which is reactive. And that might be somebody who has normal fasting glucose, but then they start to experience symptoms of reactive hypoglycemia, or they start to experience symptoms of low blood sugar within four hours of eating. So in this kind of scenario, they may experience a big increase in blood sugar after a meal and then a big drop in blood sugar after a meal. And so their blood sugar is reactive to the meals that they're eating. So how do you know if this is an issue for you? Well, there's many different ways we could consider this, but one of the most simple questions that I ask my clients is, how do you feel when you eat? Does your energy get better? Does it stay the same? Or do you feel more tired after you eat a meal? And the optimal response to eating a meal is to experience no change in energy after eating. This means that energy should remain the same before the meal and after the meal. An energy lump after a meal can indicate high blood sugar or insulin resistance. And an energy increase after a meal or improved cognitive function after a meal can be a sign of low blood sugar. In other words, if your blood sugar was low and then you ate some food, you had a meal, that would have increased your blood sugar and now you feel back to normal again. So although it's great to feel back to normal again, it's a sign that blood sugar was too low before and then it was corrected by the meal. So just to say what we want is you feel the same before and after a meal. Some additional clues as well. So craving sweets during the day, maybe feeling very irritable if you miss a meal or you eat your meal later than expected, being dependent on caffeine. Not everybody with chronic illness can tolerate caffeine, but for those of you that do, um, I do have some clients who can feel dependent on caffeine maybe in the morning to get them up and get them going. Feeling lightheaded if you miss a meal, needing to eat frequently all the time, eating that relieves fatigue, feeling shaky or jittery between meals, experiencing poor memory or forgetfulness between meals, experiencing blurred vision or difficulty waking in the morning, loss of appetite, especially in the morning, difficulty staying asleep throughout the night, or energy crashes during the day. Some of these symptoms could also be associated with hyper high blood sugar, but if you're somebody who notices that you feel better after you eat and you're resonating with some of those symptoms, there's probably a good chance there's a little bit of hypoglycemia going on. Hypoglycemia can also be associated with fatigue, which is the nature of this podcast, insomnia, so poor sleep, mood disorders, infertility, slow metabolism, difficulty losing weight, headaches, hormonal imbalances, adrenal dysfunction, poor circulation, cold hands and feet, hair falling out, unhealthy nails, muscle cramps, salt cravings, inability to stay hydrated very tight muscles, inability to handle stress, 
unable to exercise without exhaustion or even bursts of anxiety throughout the day. So that's a whole long list of different things that are um, that hypoglycemia may be associated with, which, you know, these are very common symptoms that a lot of my clients are coming to me with, not necessarily all of them or not necessarily everybody has the same ones, but a lot of complaints that people with fatigue are poor mood, fatigue, difficulty sleeping. Um, you know, those are really, really common ones. Inability to handle stress, exhaustion after exercise, anxiety. And those are all things which are influenced by blood sugar control, which is why at the very least we need to optimize blood sugar so we can rule that out as a cause of these symptoms before we go in and start doing anything more complicated, more expensive or more aggressive. So now that you have a little bit of an understanding of lens and clues, maybe this could be something that um, you are experiencing and hopefully by now I've communicated the importance of addressing this. Let's have a little bit of a look at like what's going on underneath the hood when a hypoglycemic event is happening in the body. And so provided that there's no underlying disease condition associated with the hypoglycemia, most people will experience hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, due to a loss of resiliency. I think most people who are on their chronic illness journeys have already acknowledged that there's a lack of resiliency there. So that probably doesn't come as much of a surprise. But it, just to kind of go into that mechanism and understand it on a deeper level, it's due to failing counter-regulatory responses which are offered by the adrenal glands when blood sugar falls low. So let's look at what happens when blood sugar drops. When blood sugar drops too low, the adrenal glands will release epinephrine, uh, which is a neurotransmitter, and cortisol, which is a hormone. And these are energy-liberating hormones, which means that they liberate stored glucose from the liver and muscle tissue and the resultant effect is an increase in blood sugar. So obviously that's very helpful. When blood sugar falls low, we can release these hormones and neurotransmitters, and then um, they bring stored sugar into circulation, raising blood sugar. However, glucose released into the bloodstream also needs to get into our cells. So when we're losing function before a meal, Blood sugar is low, but also when blood sugar is low, it means there's not enough energy which is able to get into the cells so that the brain can work well, the muscles can work well, you know, whatever function we're losing at the time. So what needs to happen is that the pancreas, which is the organ which regulates insulin, must release a surge of insulin so that we can take the energy which has been liberated into the bloodstream and get it into the cells. So at the same time, the pancreas is also producing glucagon, which is stimulating glucose production in the liver. So we've got quite a few different things happening here. We've got the adrenal glands working very hard to produce epinephrine and cortisol. We've got the pancreas working really hard to produce insulin and glucagon. So the adrenal glands and the pancreas are really working hard in this situation and they're doing their very best to maintain stability. Now, in a healthy person, these counter-regulatory mechanisms kick in and we wouldn't even know. This is happening the whole time in the background and it's keeping your blood sugar really stable. So when there is a loss of resiliency, 
what's happening is there's a delay or there's an ineffective response. So blood sugar is dropping low and instead of the adrenal glands kicking in immediately and the pancreas kicking in immediately to deal with the situation, they're not or the response is slow or sluggish, ineffective and hence we experience the symptoms of hypoglycemia. So now that you understand that, you're probably asking the question like, okay, I've got it, I understand what's going on in my body, but what do I do about this now? I'm on board with the fact that restoring my blood sugar stability is important. I can understand that there's a loss of resiliency there and that's impacting my ability to stabilize my blood sugar. But how do I get out of this hole? Well, the first thing we do with any client who's experiencing hypoglycemic events or noticing an increase in energy after meals is to rule out the obvious. And I apologize if this is almost too obvious, but we need to make sure that there aren't diet and lifestyle factors which are creating these hypoglycemic events. And these factors include, but are not limited to, missing meals, avoiding snacks when needed. So especially in kind of women, not bony women though, where there's a lot of diet culture, like I mustn't snack, I shouldn't eat between meals. Um, they may purposefully be restricting calories or restricting food intake and that's causing hypoglycemia. Or people do snack, but they snack on the wrong foods. So they have high carbohydrate or sugary snacks and they're not having adequate protein, fats and fiber in their snacks. I don't think this is a lot of people in my space, but using caffeine or cigarettes to suppress appetite Excessive fasting when somebody hasn't done the preparatory work to become fat adapted. So I'm going to talk a little bit about fasting in a moment, but basically just fasting when it's inappropriate for you to do so. Lack of protein in the diet. I will probably say that's the majority of my clients are not eating enough protein. Lack of fiber in the diet. So not eating enough vegetables. Lack of healthy fats in the diet. Um, especially people coming again more from diet culture where fat is restricted, that can sometimes be an issue. Or if someone has a gallbladder problem and they're just naturally avoiding fats because it triggers symptoms, that can be an issue as well. And then the obvious like eating too much carbohydrates and probably not too much of a concern from my population, but overtraining without replenishing glucose stores. So, you know, that could have been a contributing factor in the past, which has worn out the pancreas and worn out the adrenal glands, but often by the time somebody reaches the sort of chronic fatigue, chronic illness stage, they're no longer overtraining. Although when it comes to oxidative stress, you know, overtraining is relevant to the individual, uh, which is a whole discussion for another day. So the thing we want to do is that if you believe your diet and lifestyle are impacting your blood sugar, then we need to change those things. The great thing about this stuff is that it's free. When it comes to chronic illness and you've got a practitioner who's recommending all these expensive tests and all these expensive supplements, but you can just change what you're eating without having to spend all that money and feel better for it, that's a win. And that's why this is something we always want to make sure we do. Because I do believe in the value of functional testing and I do believe in the value of appropriately chosen supplements. But I don't believe that they're helpful and it's not worth all your money when you haven't got your blood sugar under control. So what do we do? Well, we make sure that breakfast is high in protein, ideally from animal protein. 
and it should be eaten every day without fail. If you're someone who struggles to eat in the morning, I don't usually pressurize my clients to eat first thing if they're not up for that. But when they are ready to break their fast, so to speak, that meal should contain at least 30 grams of protein, maybe a little bit less if you're a smaller person, more if you're a bigger person. We should also be eating adequate protein with every meal and snack. And so that is, again, it depends on the size of the individual, but it's about 30 to 40 grams of protein at each meal. And you can get that much protein from vegetarian or vegan sources, but it's hard because it's hard to eat that much protein without overeating on carbs if the sources of protein are things like lentils and beans, that type of thing. So my preference is that people eat animal protein they eat animal protein three times a day, at least if they're experiencing hypoglycemic events. We also need to make sure there is enough veg in the diet and each meal contains half a plate at least of low carbohydrate vegetables and that there's fats on the plate, whether that's avocado, olive oil, olives, coconut milk, coconut butter, coconut yogurt, nuts and seeds, oily fish. Obviously, there may be individual preferences or tolerances, but we want to make sure that there's enough fat on the plate. Then we want to cut out processed carbohydrates and all sugars. I don't mind if you know you need to have a little square of dark chocolate after a meal. That's absolutely okay. But you know we want to make sure that for the most part the carbohydrates are unprocessed, and that the portion sizes are appropriate so that energy is sustained until the next meal. And this is where trial and error is probably going to come in. Maybe you're going to eat a little bit too little and then you know next time you need to increase the portion size. Or maybe you eat a little bit too much and then you actually feel tired after the meal and then you need to decrease the portion size. So what we're looking for is sustainable energy. I'm a big fan of tracking food. Um, it's not for everyone. It can feel very overwhelming and complicated if you're particularly unwell. But if you are happy to track food on an app like MyFitnessPal, where you're sort of weighing and measuring and calculating the exact amounts of your macronutrients in each meal, that can give you some really nice um, objective data that you can work with so that you can modulate the ratios of proteins, fats, and fiber and carbohydrate in each meal and work out the optimal balance for you. We also want to make sure that you're eating as frequently as needed to prevent energy crashes. And some people, if they just get the macronutrient composition of their diet right, that might be just three main meals and a little snack. Some people may need to eat every two or three hours um, to get their blood sugar stable. But the goal is to find stability. So we're eliminating crashes because that gives the pancreas and the adrenal glands a break. And if you're somebody who believes a lot in the, the power of nervous system work, then remember that this is also your nervous system work to stabilize blood sugar enough to prevent energy crashes. Because every time we have an energy crash, we're asking the adrenal glands to work harder and harder. You also want to avoid the use of stimulants, manage stress, and make sure sleep is adequate Sleep in itself is another whole complex web. Improving the hypoglycemia may also improve the sleep, but there can be other factors that impact sleep as well. And that's a, that's a web in itself that needs to be unpicked. But where I would start with somebody who is struggling with their sleep is to work on blood sugar. 
first and foremost. So it sounds like a lot of changes potentially, depending on your awareness of your diet and how much you've looked at nutrition so far in your journey. And, you know, for me, all of this stuff is, is very obvious and not hard. But for somebody who's hearing this information for the first time, it, it can sound really overwhelming. So as with anything in your fatigue recovery journey is take your time. Yes, these things are a priority and they need to be addressed. But the fastest way to heal is at the pace which is appropriate for you. And even if you just start with getting your protein at breakfast and that's what you focus on for a few weeks. And then you start with getting your protein at lunch and you focus on that for a few weeks and you slowly make your way through making these changes, then over time you get to where you need to go. So once you're in this routine, there are certain benchmarks which are going to tell you whether or not what you're doing is actually working. And as I said already, is that the goal is no energy crashes throughout the day. Energy should be the same before meals and after meals, and we shouldn't be experiencing any major energy crashes. So that helps to take the pressure off the pancreas and the adrenal glands, and that is supportive of your journey. You also want to make sure that you don't have any sugar cravings. You shouldn't feel back to normal, in air quotes, after eating. You should notice that you feel hungry before you start to lose function. So some people won't feel hungry, but they'll start losing function. And that suggests that there's a little bit of a disconnect from between the body and the hunger signals and everything that's going on there. So somebody should naturally start to feel a little bit hungry, go, oh yes, I'm ready to eat now and eat and not wait until they're losing function. And then they go, oh, I need to eat just to kind of get my energy back. And then finally, another benchmark is being able to sleep throughout the night and feel rested in the morning. I appreciate that that's easier said than done. There can be other complexities when it comes to sleep, but the first step is blood sugar control. So once you've achieved all of those things, then you know that your diet is working for you. And if you aren't experiencing these benefits, then you may need to play around a little bit further with your diets. Um, and in some cases, even transition to a ketogenic diet in a slow and tapered way. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But once you have achieved all of these five things that I mentioned, the no more energy crashes, no more sugar cravings, no more changes in energy after meals, feeling hungry before you lose function and sleeping through the night, then you can start to add in a little bit more carbohydrate back into your diet. So you can start to play with the flexibility of your diet. And um, if your symptoms return, then you go, okay, no, that's too much. But there may be, as resiliency improves, opportunity to um, expand and to be able to have a greater variety in your diet as well. So sometimes people have a resistance to making dietary changes because they're like, oh, I don't want to do this forever. And there are cases where people do need to do things forever. But there are also cases where we do things for a period of time, takes pressure off the systems that have been overworking to com compensate and then we're able to create more variety in the diet again, which is a long-term goal. Briefly mentioned the ketogenic diet. Um, and because this is a question I often do get asked is, is a ketogenic diet appropriate for someone who is hypoglycemic? And here I will say that it depends. And it also depends on how you transition. 
So ketogenic diet can actually be a really useful tool because when somebody adapts to using fat as a fuel source, it can take pressure off the pancreas and the adrenal glands. But if somebody goes from eating a diet which is highly processed and carbohydrates and they're eating a lot of sugar and they're not used to having a lot of fat in their diet, then suddenly jumping into a ketogenic diet is going to make them feel awful, especially if they're someone who's lost resiliency and is prone to these hypoglycemic events. So if somebody wants to use a ketogenic diet to help with their hypoglycemia, I would still go through all the steps I previously mentioned about increasing protein, fat, and fiber, eating regularly, reducing carbohydrates, getting off stimulants, all of those different principles. And then over time, you're just reducing your carbohydrates further and further down, and then you're reducing your fats up and up and up and up so that you're not experiencing hypoglycemic events as you transition. I have a whole other podcast on the ketogenic diet, which you can listen to. And I also have um, a blog, which I've written on the ketogenic diet on my website. Um, So if you head over to my website, anamash.co.uk, just go to the blog, put the search tool in. um, In the search tool, you can just search ketogenic diet and, and all the options will come up there for you. So it should be easy enough to find. Another question I also get asked is about fasting and can somebody or should somebody with hypoglycemic hypoglycemic events fast? I'm going to say for the most part or generally speaking, fasting isn't appropriate until somebody is adapted to using fat as a fuel source, which usually requires a ketogenic diet and a low carbohydrate diet. So if somebody wanted to use fasting, I would still recommend they do the initial principles. They then implement a ketogenic diet when they're keto adapted, which is the absence of ketones on urine, but a presence of ketones in blood, then they're ready to start fasting. And that can then be a really useful tool to take the pressure off the pancreas. But it's something that that is a, a tool that we would use in a case specific way and much further along in someone's journey, we wouldn't just throw somebody who's experiencing a lot of hypoglycemia into fasting practices. So where I kind of like to finish off with this is what happens if you still have ongoing symptoms despite making all these changes? And before I kind of talk about that specifically, what I will say is that I've worked with clients who have been resistant to eating animal protein or more animal protein who haven't wanted to give up carbohydrates or stop eating fruit and maybe have an aversion to eating fats for whatever reason. And so sometimes on paper, their diet can look really healthy. They're like, I'm eating all these beans and lentils and nuts and seeds. I'm just having, you know, some fruits and some yogurt. I'm eating regularly, but I still feel like I'm having these crashes, even though my diet is clean, there's no sugar, there's no processed carbs, but I still seem to be having these energy crashes. And um, they may have a healthy diet from a food quality perspective, but the ratio of macronutrients is not appropriate for their blood sugar control and resiliency. And some, in some cases, I will say to clients, like, you have to start eating animal protein. You have to go ketogenic. And if that person isn't able to make that change for whatever reason, we kind of get to a stalemate and there's not very much else we can do. And I think I feel like it's really important for me to be honest about this 
because in the past, I think I've just tried to be too helpful and too accommodating and too nice with clients. So we say, oh no, it's okay. We can work around that. We can try this. We can try that. And when I've approached it that way, and I've seen people just not get the outcomes that we really need them to get for their health, I realized that that way of approaching things is not helping anyone. It's wasting their time, um, their money, their energy, and, and my time and energy as well. So I do want to be really clear upfront that depending on your unique situation, you may need to eat animal protein and go ketogenic. I don't know your situation because you're not one of my clients, but for somebody who's listening to this, that might be you. And you may have a lot of resistance to that approach for whatever reasons and personal beliefs or finances or whatever it might be. But this stuff is really important and it makes a difference. And even if you can just convince yourself to give it a go with hopefully appropriate supervision so it's done right for four or six weeks, then you can make the decision about whether or not it's helped or not. And then if it's something that you want to continue. So when we're talking about ongoing symptoms, despite eating the perfect diet, I wanted to start with that little piece just to frame what the perfect diet actually entails. And what I'm talking about in this scenario is someone who is basically eating meat, vegetables, and healthy fats every three hours, and they're still experiencing hypoglycemic events or difficulty regulating their blood sugar. If that is the case, then we need to start to think about what else could potentially be going on with this person. And this work is best done with a practitioner. So things that might be happening could be depletion of the pancreatic alpha cells. So I mentioned how the pancreas and the adrenal glands are working really, really hard in these hypoglycemic events. And if someone has been living with hypoglycemia for years and years of their life, for whatever reason, these alpha cells, which are responsible for producing glucagon, can become depleted. And this is when a ketogenic diet can be really helpful to take the burden off the pancreas and allow the alpha cells to heal and recover. But sometimes when it's been happening for a really long time, it may just be something that needs to be managed lifelong with appropriate you know, ketogenic diet for support and regular eating. Um, but that just might be what you need to do um, long term to support your body as best as possible. Another potential is adrenal gland autoimmunity. This is when the immune cells attack the adrenal glands and this impacts their ability to regulate blood sugar because the adrenal function is compromised. The best way to assess this is by measuring adrenal antibodies, which are the 21-hydroxylase antibodies. And this can be done with a Cyrex ARI-5 panel, which um, is based on through an appropriately trained practitioner. The other is brain injury or dysautonomia. So when an area of the brain has become damaged, the surrounding areas increase their energy demand to compensate for the area that's not working as well. And this means that the brain needs even more energy and that can result in hypoglycemic events. And there may be specifically dysautonomia associated with a brain injury and kind of clues that this could be the case would be if there's immediate anxiety, immediate changes in heart rate, or even a, a physiological tremor when blood sugar drops low. And um, I've recorded some podcasts recently talking a little bit more about brain injuries and fatigue recovery. And funnily enough, it is something I'm seeing more and more in my practice 
now that I'm looking for it. And so a lot of my clients have had car accidents or um, you know, fallen off their bike and had a concussion or you know various different circumstances. And nobody has ever like considered that those events are something that's impacting their whole fatigue picture. And the brain is just so important for our health. And if we've had any um, traumatic events to the brain, and then this is something that we need to consider in, in terms of the whole clinical picture. And then the final one, which would need to be further explored, or actually, sorry, not the final one. I've got a few more here. Um, something that which, that which would need to be explored with a, your medical, appropriately trained medical professional would be some sort of malignancy or infection, anemia, um, sometimes chronic infections like hepatitis C can also cause these blood sugar issues. Um, and just generally speaking, disrupted cortisol rhythms. So below cortisol or a poor cortisol awakening response in the morning, which is when we should have a cortisol surge. If that cortisol surge in the morning isn't happening, then we need to work with the body to reestablish the daily rhythms of our adrenal response and um, get that surge happening again. And something I think I've spoken about in the sleep episode is the importance of morning light. So movement in the morning, light in the morning, those are really important things because a lot of people with fatigue, they wake up tired and they wake up with low motivation and they don't want to get out of bed and they don't want to go outside. And so they're not getting any movement in the morning. They're not getting any light exposure in the morning. And that's gradually just like eating away at their cortisol and circadian rhythms, which um really important for so many different reasons, but one of the reasons is also for healthy blood sugar control. So that brings me to the end of today's episode. If you are somebody who experiences hypoglycemic events, I hope you found this useful and insightful, and maybe you've got a few little takeaways of things to go away and implement and try. Um, I love to connect with you on social media, so um, please feel free to follow me on Instagram, Anna underscore Marsh underscore Nutrition. Um, I'd love to know if you enjoyed the episode, what changes you've made, how they're helping you. Um, it's always lovely to hear that this podcast is reaching so many people in so many countries all across the world, and it's making a difference to, to health journeys. So it's been such a pleasure to share this all with you today, and I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode.